first moved to Nashville for undergrad, I fell into a friendship with a guy named Sip Contreras. His name, Sip, was short for Cyprian. His family was Greek Orthodox, even though his dad was from Guatemala. They were a really fun family. (laughs) They were the first Orthodox family I ever knew well. Uh, In addition to being Orthodox, the Contreras family was very musical. The mother had an incredible voice, and the father played a really mean guitar. And the older brother was a jazz pianist. And although all of the family was talented, it was the youngest brother who was exceptional. Even before I met him, I heard whispers of a fiddle-playing prodigy named Billy. In a town like Nashville, there are a lot of good musicians. There are also a lot of wannabes. So I didn't know what to make of these rumors and the first time I went to the Contreras' simple house, I was, I was really curious to see and meet this, this boy genius that everyone was talking about. The family was just getting back to, from church when I arrived, and we gathered just inside the front door uh, as I was introduced to Sip's parents, his older brother, and scattered girlfriends from the family. And a few minutes into this introductory pageantry, an 11-year-old boy with shaggy brown hair, rode up to the front steps of the house and deposited his bike at the base of the stairs. His mom caught him as he marched into the, ha- into the house and forced a quick hello out of him. I responded in kind, and he looked up at his mom for permission to leave us alone. <laughs> this was Billy. He seemed like a totally normal 11-year-old boy. I saw Billy a few days later, and we talked a bit more, mostly about California and mountain biking and surfing and things like that. Again, everything pretty normal, right? But this time, Billy's mom mentioned that he would be playing the next night at the Ryman Auditorium. Now, the Ryman, for those of you who don't know, is one of the finest music venues in the entire country. Among other things, the Ryman was a longtime home of the Grand Old Opry. Uh, it was also known as the birthplace of bluegrass. It's the sort of ven- venue where you can hear a pin drop, but also a really loud band sounds really good. It's an amazing place, and it is legendary. The fact that Billy, this 11-year-old, would be sitting in with a touring artist at the Ryman on a weeknight was striking. It was something I was not going to miss. So I marched on down there with the family. I can't remember who the band was that night. It was some kind of like Western swing thing. Um, But they played a couple of songs, and then they invited Billy to come on out. I was sitting with Billy's mom and Sip in the front of the hall. As Billy walked out, he looked something like he did when I first saw him. Shy and like a little goofy. He like shifted his weight and adjusted the chin strap on his violin. You know, he looked... Pretty awkward. But when the drummer counted off the song, Billy lifted his bow, shifted his weight, and took the form of a champion. (laughs) Even with the first few notes, I could tell this was something special. 
And by the time the first solo had finished, the auditorium erupted in applause. Billy was not just good. He was a genius. No, not the self-declared stable genius like our friend in the White House. Billy, <laughs> Billy heard, felt, and expressed himself musically with no filter and a brilliance that was hard to pinpoint but obvious to anyone listening. Standing there on the Opry stage, he was transfigured. He was the same boy I'd seen before, but so much more. In that moment, he revealed something about himself and about the world that was always there, waiting to be unveiled. Transfigured. Such was the case with Jesus on this famous mountain climb with Peter, James, and John. Every year, in the season of Epiphany, we begin with Jesus' baptism, and we end with the transfiguration. This happens every year. I know we don't talk about it much, but get used to it. We'll come back. (laughs) (laughs) These are two moments of epiphany, moments when the world realizes the presence of God with us. And they share these two statements. You are my son, my child, my beloved. This affirming language that empowers Jesus to go out and change the way we understand the world. Language we will explore more in the weeks and months to come. For now, we are here with Jesus and Peter and James and John on a mountain. There is so much I love about this passage. I love the wilderness component. Some friends out on the climb, and it changes their worldview. That makes sense to me. I've been through that. I love the awkwardness of Peter. He did not know what to say, as Mark says. So, of course, he spoke some nonsense. Seems authentic and true. I love... Moses and Elijah, as someone who dorks out on biblical scholarship, I love that Moses and Elijah are the law and the prophets. I love that both Moses and Elijah experienced theophany, the appearance of the divine to a human, and both experienced them on mountains. I love that their appearance is the fulfillment of the end of uh, Malachi. No, it's not the Hawaiian island with the lepers. Malachi is the last of the Hebrew prophets, the final words of the Hebrew Bible. Within Judean culture in Jesus' time, there were messianic expectations that involved a return of Moses and Elijah as referenced in Malachi. Okay? And those expectations were heightened by the fact that neither Moses nor Elijah had graves. As we read this this morning, Elijah was taking up. Swing low, sweet chariot. And Moses never entered the Holy Land. We remember that bit. So people knew, did not know where he wandered about and where his last remains ended up. So people started to wonder, was he coming back? There's so much in this passage. There's also this bit, uh, the Markin or Messianic secret from last week. Remember the hush-hush? Jesus tells the disciples to tell no one, which you might have noticed, might have noticed, echoes 
a similar theme that Elijah spoke in the last moments of his life. Tell no one. All of those facts are good and interesting, but they don't get to the point. Here is the, fu- the fullness, the fulfillment of Christ re- revealed. This is the moment when we get exactly what we want from God. No doubt, the presence of God in its fullness, the veil is lifted, God is with us. In Celtic theology, there's this notion, some of you might have heard, of thin places. Thin places are those locations where the veil between this world and the eternal, between us and God, is thin. To the ancient Israelites, this was Mount Horeb, the mountain upon which Moses saw the burning bush and Elijah witnessed God passing by after the fire and the earthquake and the wind. Here in the United States, we have thin places like Chimayo or Chimayo in New Mexico. Has anyone ever heard of this spot? Uh, so it's reference. It's considered the most important Catholic pilgrimage center in the United States. Uh, it's actually an incredible. If you're ever in New Mexico in Holy Week, which is in general amazing you know, as it is, you could be anywhere in New Mexico and it's impressive. But uh, in Chimayo, uh, people. So uh, first of all, three hundred thousand visitors from around the world go to this site in Chimayo to to see it every year. But but at the peak of it is at Holy Week, where people will crawl on their hands and knees for hundreds of miles just to get to the site of this one little chapel that is there. The chapel has a, a little potrero, or a little like well, which has uh, tierra bendita, has like uh, holy dirt in it um, that is notorious, notorious for healing. People take little bits of this of this dirt and rub it on themselves, and uh, it, it's said to provide both physical and spiritual healing. I have several friends that have visited this this location and have said that uh, they've experienced what is called a shiny skull, which is when you're in prayer or meditation and you feel a tingling at the front edge of your of your head. It's a very very special place. It is a thin. Place. We all have these places that are special to us, places where we feel the divine more than in others. For me, it might be in Varanasi or Kathmandu or maybe my sacred Rincon. Uh, <laughs> for the Black Elk in Lakota Sioux, it was Harney Peak in the Black Hills. For our, our Hollywood folks, it might be Grauman's Chinese Theater. For classicists, it might be Athens. For uh, our bluegrass friends, it might be the Ryman Auditorium. Every culture has its thin places. But thin places are not just mountaintops or sacred shrines, pilgrimage sites. They are farms where our food is grown, museums that inspire us to imagine the world differently. Thin places are shelters and soup kitchens where we remember what it means to have enough. There are hospital rooms where we recover our health and strength. Of all the thin places I visited around the world, I think hospitals are the place where I most encounter the divine. The place I commonly see people transfigured. 
in seminary, I had the privilege of working in a hospital as a chaplain in what is called clinical pastoral education, or CPE. CPE is one of the most important parts of seminary. It is there that pastors practice the skills of their trade. You learn to acknowledge your own emotions so that they do not interfere with your ability to be present to another. You practice writing verbatims to enhance your recall. You talk through theological implications of your encounters with other people who are also going through the program. But most importantly, you learn to listen. It's interesting to learn how to listen in a hospital room. Have you sat and listened in a hospital room? There's lots of beeping, lots of noises, a lot of people going by, a lot of things going alarm, IV drips, making noises. It's a noisy place. It's a noisy place where the room, the doors are often open and there's a lot of chatter. It requires that you listen closely. It's a challenge to listen closely if a patient is intubated or nonverbal following a stroke. But it is powerful. It reminds us how God is present in the least of these. I love that divine voice today. This is my son, my child, the beloved. Listen to him. Listen, pay close attention. Again, I love how Peter is filled with nervous talk at the sight of Jesus transfigured. It's such a human reaction. And Mark captures it perfectly. He did not know what to say. They were terrified. So often we talk when we are uncomfortable. As Ecclesiastes puts it, Dreams come with many cares and a fool's voice with many words. A fool's voice with many words, or in our day, 140 characters. <laughs> I saw an editorial in the New York Times on Olympic uh, biathlete Lowell Bailey. He was talking about his preparation, how he stays calm as he, as he uh, performs Amidst the shouts of the crowd and the difficulty of pushing his body to his limits, he has one simple phrase that keeps him on track. It is a quote from Theodore Roosevelt. It says, Do what you can with what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. That simple phrase helps him tune out the chatter and his fears, it helps him listen to what matters. This is my son. Listen to him. Yes, the transfiguration gives us the God we want, unveiled, brilliant, but that is not the end of the story. Jesus, in Jesus, God reveals Power made perfect in weakness, as Paul says. The cross, like the hospital room, tells us something very important about who God is and who we can be. What we can overcome. Listen to him. Listen like a patient on a hospital bed. 
And like that patient, the language can be so beautiful. Like the fiddle of a child prodigy, it comes effortlessly, unfiltered. Like the mantra, mantra of, a, of an athlete, the word of God brings us back to what matters. Listen to him. Amen.